0: The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. I want you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. This is, in fact, let me show you this. If we, if we look at the big picture of, the, of 2 Corinthians, there's three major sections. The first is, Paul is explaining his ministry, because he is an apostle, which is right at the heart of the new covenant. He is a new covenant minister, and he happens to have this position, this, this gift of apostleship, that the Lord Jesus Christ gave him this assignment personally. Even though he was not a follower of Christ before his crucifixion, he became one after because, he, if you remember, he was on his way to, to Damascus to arrest Christians. He hated Christianity, He hated this idea that Jesus was a Messiah. He didn't believe it, and so he was trying to completely destroy uh, Christianity, the following of Christ, but Christ met him on the road, and he gave him an assignment And that assignment was he sent him to the Gentiles to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And so he's an apostle. That's what apostle means. It means one sent by Christ. Now, Paul is one of those apostles' large A. That is, he was personally sent by Christ. The New Testament says all of us have been sent. Jesus says this in John 20, even as the Father sent me, so send I you. And uh, that's true of all of us. We've been sent into the world. To take the gospel. And so today, as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it fits into the the flow of uh, 2 Corinthians this way. The first seven chapters, Paul is explaining his ministry, that he's a new covenant minister. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then in uh, chapters 8 and 9, we saw the collection for the saints in Judea. He's wanting these Gentile believers to give to the Jewish believers— who look down on them as though they were second-class citizens of the kingdom of God. And he wants them to show this, this their love for them in doing this, because he thinks it's going to bring greatly needed reconciliation. And then finally, in chapters 10 through 13, uh, Paul is vindicating his apostleship. The reason for this is he's being attacked. There's a group who's come into uh, the church at Corinth and has been attacking Paul's reputation basically trying to convince the church that he's not really an apostle he's not really as tough as he sounds in his letters and he's a coward <laughs> that's that's their attacks and so Paul wants to defend his apostleship not because he's touchy but because he wants to continue to fulfill the calling that Christ has put on his life to be an encouragement to them as they grow in the Christian life. After all, he's the one who brought the gospel to them. It was through Paul that the church at Corinth came into existence. And so he's not simply saying, I'm not that bad. He's saying the attack on my apostleship is an attack on Christ because Christ is the one who sent me. And it's important that they understand this. And I think what we see in this, in this passage is things that can be experienced often in uh, different parts of, of the Christian church, is uh, when God starts using someone, often it's so easy, he easily becomes a target for those who are jealous of him, and that was what was going on here. Let me first of all just read you his words in First Corinthians chapter 10, if you'll turn there. I'm reading from the New American Standard. I hope you all have an, a New American Standard, but I don't think so, but... Let me read from uh, 1 Corinthians 10. Now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold towards you when absent. He's quoting them. That's what they claim. Oh yeah, Paul is meek when he's with you, but then he's a roaring lion when he's away and writing you these very severe letters. I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some, those who are opposing the gospel, who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, that is, we're really human, just human beings, but he says we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing that, raised up, that is raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. He wants them to think clearly. He wants them to think biblically. He wants to think through the gospel. He wants them to look at life through the gospel and not through what these men are trying to distort. And he says, we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. You are looking at things as they are outwardly. If anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ, let him consider this again within himself, that just as he is Christ, so also are we. And even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave, and get this, he gave us authority for building you up and not destroying you, (laughs) I will not be put to shame. For I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when absent, such persons we are also indeed when present. For we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves, But when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. For we will not boast beyond our measure, but within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned to us. He apportioned to Paul to take the gospel to the Gentiles, and that's what Corinth is. But we will boast, we will not boast beyond our measure, but within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned to us, As a measure to reach even as far as you. For we are not overextending ourselves as if we did not reach to you. But we were the first to come even as far as you, that is to Corinth, in the gospel of Christ. Think of that, that Paul was the first one to bring the gospel to Corinth. Not boasting beyond our measure... That is, in other men's labors, but with the hope that as your faith grows, we will be within our sphere enlarged even more by you. We're going to go, through your efforts, we're going to go beyond Corinth to take the gospel even further west. So as to preach the gospel even to the reasons beyond you and not to boast in what has been accomplished in the sphere of another. But he who boasts is to boast in the Lord. That's the only boast we have. It's in the Lord. Or it is not he who commends himself that is approved, but he whom the Lord commends. Now, I want uh, to remind you that this, this question, I think I put it on here, why is this a hill to die on? Why does Paul spend a chapter, in fact, the last three chapters defending himself, last four chapters defending himself and his ministry? Well, the reason is, Paul says in Colossians 1.25, Of this church, that is the church, not the local church, but the church universal of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit. God gave me a stewardship, he says. He's an administrator of something. He's a dispenser of the grace of God in a very particular way. And he goes on to explain, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God to you. Now, what that literally says in the Greek is that I might fill up the word of God. I don't know if it has the implication for sure that he's saying, I know God gave me a portion of this work of the apostles. Because if you go back and look in the upper room discourse in John 14, 15 and 16, Jesus told his apostles that when the spirit came, he was going to lead them into all the truth. He was going to remind them of what he had taught them and was going to show them things to come. And they were to write that and communicate that. That's how we have the New Testament. This is called the faith, the New Testament. That's the content of our understanding of Christ. And so they were given that that stewardship, and Paul was given that stewardship by Christ after his resurrection. He was a latecomer. He said he was was an apostle born out of due season. Uh, he He came after Christ was raised from the dead, and God took hold of him, and he used him. And most of the New Testament, well, I shouldn't say that. It's not most of the New Testament in bulk, but he wrote 10 of the New Testament epistles. And so we have all of this truth given to us through the apostle Paul, his portion of this stewardship. And what we've been saying is in, first, in Second Corinthians is that all of us are stewards of the manifold grace of God. 1 Peter 4.10 says you've been given a spiritual gift and you're to use it as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. You're dispensers of God's grace. Now that, what that means is you are to give yourselves away and by doing that you're giving the living God to others. Sometimes we are totally unaware of how God wants to use us in our daily life as we grow as disciples. And so Paul understands this and he's going to defend his apostleship so that those at Corinth are not going to crumble under this attack against what they've received from Paul. See, this was one of the problems that what they'd received from Paul was the true gospel. That the good news is you cannot make yourself right with God. Only Christ can do that. And therefore, he calls them to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But these newcomers are telling them, you need to keep the law in order to be right with God. You need to come under the law, and through your efforts, you can be made right. You can make yourself right with God. You can make yourself holy. Or like the book of Galatians says, as Ryan will explain to us, that having begun in the Spirit, you think you can can reach the end through your own efforts? No. Sanctification is through the Holy Spirit, not your individual efforts. But it's the work of the Spirit of God in our lives. So now I want to do is look at these these attacks and Paul's response. And the first one is, this is what his critics say, he's a coward. That is simply uh, verses 1 through 7a, in which Paul is responding to this accusation that he's a coward. Oh, he seems tough. He writes these letters and they're scathing. But when he shows up, he's this meek and mild man. And so Paul responds to this. And he says, no, I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. He says, yes, I am meek and gentle because I am joined to Christ, and Christ's character is being shown through me. You know where this comes from, right? Matthew chapter 11, when Jesus says, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly. I am meek and humble. I am meek, which means kind, gentle. He's gentle and he's humble. And guess what? All those who represent him in this world ought to have the same character, right? All of us should. And this is what Paul had, but they were complaining about it. And so he says, I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some, that is, these enemies of the gospel, who regard us as, we, as if we walked according to the flesh, or just humanly, if you have an NIV. We just, we're just human beings, and so they're saying that there's nothing supernatural about this guy. Now, what he's doing here is he's. Some in the church at Corinth have been captivated by these impressive ministers from Judea. These are Jewish men who claim to be followers of Christ, but really preach a distorted gospel. And they have letters of recommendation. In chapter 3, Paul says, we don't, Yes, it's true, we don't have letters of recommendation because you are our letter. What did he mean by that? He said, what God has done in your lives through the preaching of the gospel, which we brought to you, That's the letter of recommendation, not something on a piece of paper that says this guy has credentials, but it's the fruit of his labor. And so Paul says, Look around, look among the believers among you, which you sit and worship God. This is what God did through the gospel. These guys claimed ecstatic and visionary experiences, they've had visions. Uh, Colossians talks about this and says they go into great detail over visions they have seen, but has no substance to it, and so they're using that as the basis of their authority to attack Paul. They also, really interestingly, they boasted that they've come from a lot further distance than Paul has. Paul was up in Macedonia for the last few years. And so he just comes down. It's kind of like somebody's in Oregon and they come to California. They say it's like they're from New York and they've come all the way out to these people. In other words, we've shown much more interest in you. We've come a long distance to minister to you. So the big problem that they had was that they despised Paul. The guy that they said, he's timid when he's with you, but he's bold in his letters. So their charge is that Paul lacks divine power, the kind of power they had. Maybe you've never been exposed to this kind of thing. (laughs) The church is filled with it. You can see it a lot on TV. People who claim to have supernatural power because of the experiences they've had. Rather than seeing themselves as nothing, Christ is everything. Christ is everything. And so Paul responds in this way. Paul didn't pretend to be anything more than an ordinary man. He was the one who said, I'm the chief of sinners. He was, a, he was the one who admitted that he was just a man, but that the message he brought was supernatural. It was the message of salvation through Christ. By the way, you don't have to become something spectacular to be used by God. You have to become dependent you have to become faithful. You have to become full of faith towards Christ, and He'll use you. Sometimes people are amazed that God uses them in somebody's life. Somebody comes to them and says, I just want to let you know God has really used you in my life, and they're thinking, What? God doesn't use me. I'm just one of those ordinary Christians who who go to church and and try to follow Christ. No, you are a minister of Jesus Christ. You're a minister of the new covenant. You're a dispenser of God's grace. And so this is how Paul presented himself. They present themselves as powerful and extraordinary. And Paul says, my power means nothing. It's the power of the gospel. All I can do is proclaim to you the gospel. Sometimes we do that. Preachers get together and they talk and they talk about how they heard some sermon and man, that guy's a powerful preacher. There aren't any powerful preachers. There's a powerful gospel. There's an almighty gospel that when it's proclaimed and the Spirit of God takes it and implants it in hearts, it literally transforms people's lives. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples when he met them? They were on the, he was walking along the shore. He met these men who were fishermen and he started talking to them. He said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. I don't know if you've ever thought about that expression. What he's saying is, I'll transform you. You know how these guys learned to be fishers of fish? It was their father. Their father taught them how to fish. Jesus said, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. And all you have to do is follow me. All you have to do is watch me. All you have to do is live your life in response to me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Now, that sounds a little strange to us because most of us aren't fishermen, but you I'll be, God will use me to draw people to Christ. That's what he's saying to them. And he says, if you follow me, and that's what following Christ is all about. That's what a disciple is. is someone who follows Christ and they're being transformed by that relationship. That's why we want you in a small group. It's because you need to be meeting with a group of Christians every week who are in the word like you every day, like you're in the word every day, right? Like you should be in the Word every day. That's what I should be, in the Word every day. I want God to speak to me through His Word. I want to hear His voice in the Word of God. Don't you love it when God does that? You're reading the Word, and all of a sudden, something strikes you, and it's like you've read it a hundred times, but all of a sudden, you see it in a brand new light. In in John, 1 John 5, and John says, this is the love of God that we obey His commandments. And then he says, and his commandments are not burdensome. That struck me the other day. It's like, this is the love of God. Not only when you obey the commands, but when the commands are not, the commandments of Christ are not burdensome. See, that's transformation of heart. That's what God can do. He can transform your heart. We could, I suppose, there are some groups in which it could put a lot of pressure on people to act a certain way, look a certain way, dress a certain way, all those kind of things. But that isn't changing the heart. Sometimes, in fact, what it does, it corrupts the heart because we can become Pharisees and take great pride in what we do in the name of Christ. Instead of having our heart changed, transformed, that we love Christ more than we love life itself. And that comes through following Christ. So what, what we're told in the New Testament that their attacks on Paul revealed their true condition. In fact, if you don't mind, if you could flip over to Jude, which is the last book before Revelation, the next to the last book in the Bible. In Jude, verse 12, it's only one chapter, verse 12 he says, these are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts. Love feasts was a common thing that happened in the early church. They, they did this on a regular basis. They had a meal together. It was called a love feast because it meant that they were experiencing the, their love for each other as believers. And so they would meet and break bread, and then they would take communion together. And he says, these are men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts. When they feast with you without fear... Caring for themselves. Clouds without water. I love these expressions. Clouds without water, carried along by winds. Autumn trees without fruit. Doubly dead, uprooted. Strong language. They're fakes. There's nothing to them. There are, there are so many people who make such a big deal about how special they are, how great they are, how powerful they are, how powerful their experience has been. And yet these same men were were attacking the apostle Paul and his ministry to the people at Corinth. They wanted to gain the they wanted to gain control of this church at Corinth that Paul had planted. They wanted to undermine Paul's authority and get the people to stop listening to him and start listening to them. It was a rebellion. And he says uh, they're creating huge blind spots in some Corinthians. They're not seeing the danger of satanic thoughts. Remember back in chapter 2? I'm sure you don't remember, but back in chapter 2 Paul says when he's talking about the, the problem at the church of Corinth is they weren't forgiving a brother who had repented and turned from his sin but they couldn't bring themselves to forgive him. And Paul goes on to say this is an attack of Satan on you. He's trying to, He's trying to entice you He's trying to get control of you. And he says, we are not ignorant of his thoughts. We're not ignorant of his thoughts. We know the kind of thoughts that he encourages people to think. Self-righteousness, lack of faith in Christ, increased faith in themselves. And so here, what he's talking about is these thoughts that they're having that's been suggested by these newcomers that have come into the church and started undermining the work of Paul. Paul. And he says, uh, they, if, if you do this, if you give in to this, if you give in to these teachers, it's going to produce immaturity in you. You can't see that God's power is found in his word, not in men. And they become gullible to claims of extraordinary power. I, I grew up in a church like that, where the big deal was what kind of experience have you had? How many times have you been caught up into heaven and seen Jesus? The problem is, you become so gullible to people who can say the the craziest things under the sun to people and say, "This is the word of the Lord." And you open your Bible, and says, "Tell me where it says this." I remember a guy. Somebody gave me a tape, and it was, I know this guy too. I know him pretty well. And he, in his one of his sermons, he was teaching with authority. That when a person is slain in the spirit and they fall forward under their face, they're leaders. When they fall backward, they're followers. That sounds absurd, doesn't it? It is absurd. And it's not the Bible. It's some thought that a man had and decided it was from God. And so Paul is interested in freeing these people from this bondage that they are being sucked into. He wants to see the power of the weapons of the Spirit. It's the weapons of the Spirit that's important. Notice in verse 5, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. That is these thoughts that have been suggested to them. This is how you ought to think about things. This is the way you ought to look at life. This is the way you ought to look at the Christian life. This is the way you ought to look at experience. And he says it's raising them up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Or satanic thinking. You know, you, we, we've, we can see this manifest in all kinds of ways among Christians. We can start thinking some people have a higher, God has a higher regard for them than other kind of people. It doesn't matter what it is, whether it's race or, or political party. I hope I don't step in any toes. You know, those kind of things are how much money you have or don't have. And so Paul doesn't want them to get caught up into this. And so he wants to, to undermine their bad, evil work on the people at Corinth. You know, we do well to follow Paul in his realistic estimation of the entrenched power of unbelief and pride in the human mind. It's supernatural for you to start thinking straight. It's supernatural for your mind to be turned to the truth of the word of God. And the only way you can help people do that is by continually bringing them the true gospel that is in the word of God. First Corinthians 15. Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. And he was buried. And he was raised from the dead according to the scripture. And he was seen. And he goes on to say by up to 500 people at once. Christ died and was buried and rose again. That's how you become right with God is through this Christ who has done everything necessary to save you. He's a savior and he's the only savior. There's no, there are no people who are saviors. It's Christ himself. And so Paul wants to turn their confidence back to the Lord Jesus and away from men who seem so impressive. But we need to, we need to realize that people can be highly deceived and they're thinking, and the only thing we can do is preach the gospel to them. Preach the gospel to yourselves first, so that you actually believe this gospel, this good news. And the whole Bible is the story of the gospel. It's the story of how God sent his son into the world to save a people for himself. And it's through faith in this person, the Lord Jesus Christ, that salvation comes. Only the gospel can make that which sets itself up against God that is namely rebellious unbelief obedient to Christ. Nothing else will. I'm sure you've had the experience of, of trying to witness to somebody for years and they never would listen and then in a completely different circumstance, God supernaturally opens their eyes to the truth of the gospel and they come back and report to you that somebody else got to lead them to Christ. Well, let me tell you the truth. It's the Spirit of God who opened their eyes. What's important is not the human spokesman. It's the, it's the living spirit who opens the eyes to the truth of the gospel. So Paul is the living embodiment of what he proclaims, this very humility, which they despise. After all, a leader shouldn't be humble. Oh, wait a minute. What did Jesus say? If you want to be great in God's kingdom, this is a song, but he actually said this. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. The, the greatest person in the kingdom is, a, is the one who's the servant of all. We used to do this thing early on in the life of our church where every year we would celebrate, we'd give somebody a prize for being the most humble servant, and somebody got upset about it because they said, you're, you're feeding them with uh, pride by giving them this award for humility. But let me tell you something. A humble person in the body of Christ is one of the greatest blessings that we can have as the people of God. And so Paul is a living embodiment of this. He was one who said, I am the chief of sinners. I was saved by grace. That's why he he would loved the message of grace so much, that God giving himself freely to us. And then in the next section, in verses the last part of verse seven through eleven. Uh, He's not not a real apostle, they're saying. Now look at this, what they say in the last part of verse 7. He says, if anyone is is confident in himself that he is Christ, that is, he's Christ's minister, let him consider again within himself that just as he belongs to Christ, he's a minister of Christ, so also are we. He was called by Christ. If you go back and read the account in Acts chapter 9, he had an incredible experience meeting Christ face to face. It left him absolutely changed and transformed. What began to happen in his life, walking with Christ, completely transformed the Apostle Paul. It'll, it'll transform you too. He says, even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, and I love this, the authority of Paul. Remember back earlier in the book, he said, uh, we don't want to lord it over your faith. We want to be co-workers for your joy. What he meant by that. We're not trying to gain authority over you so you follow me i want to minister in a way that you come to have joy in christ not just that you believe it's true i i've had some of my cousins when we were kids they believed the gospel was true they just didn't believe it personally for their own salvation they'd fight you over the fact that jesus was presented as the son of god but they wouldn't put their trust in him until the spirit of god got a hold of their hearts And so they say of him, oh, he's mighty. He's a mighty lion in his letters when he's gone and you can't see him. He didn't have to look you in the eye. But he's a little lamb when he's present. He's all bark and no bite. That's what Paul is. That's what they're saying. Paul's response is, uh, listen to my letter being read and look around. Because this letter was read publicly to the church at Corinth. And so he's basically telling them, Uh, listen to this letter and look around. God used somebody as humble and as weak and as meager as me to bring the gospel to Corinth. Do you remember what happened in Corinth in, in Acts 18? Remember Acts 18? You all read Acts, don't you? Well, in Acts chapter 18, it gives you the story of how Paul went to Corinth with the gospel. The first day there... Things began to happen that made him think he was going to be persecuted again, thrown back into prison, which he was in just about every city he visited. And that night, it says Jesus came to him in a vision and said to him, Paul, don't be afraid. Continue speaking. Continue preaching the gospel, for I have many people in this city. And he didn't mean somebody. I was talking to somebody and they said, oh, they thought it meant He's got a bunch of people there that will beat up these people who are trying to hurt you. That wasn't it. It was talking about the fact, Paul, keep preaching the gospel because I'm going to save many people here. And a great number of people came to faith in Christ because Paul believed Christ and he did exactly what Jesus told him to do. What they're saying is he doesn't look like an apostle. We don't really know what Paul looked like. Some reports, sometimes you think you do because you get historical reports uh, from early church history, and they describe Paul physically. But some of them, they totally contradict. Some of them say he was short, stodgy little guy, little Jewish man with a big nose, little short guy, about five foot tall. And then other accounts say he was a large, strong man. And so you believe what you want. I, we had a teacher, Mike and I had a teacher, who loved to think that Paul was a big, strong powerful man because he was big and strong we don't know but they're complaining about the fact that he doesn't look like an apostle and when he speaks he doesn't sound like an apostle he doesn't have a radio voice maybe his voice was squeaky we don't even know and one unnamed person who's, who's in particular is confident that he belongs to Christ in the church, who's listening to these guys and thinking, yeah, I've always been suspicious of that guy, Paul. Everybody thinks he's just the greatest thing walking, but not me. And so Paul talks to him. He's probably a, really enamored with these newly arrived ministers who had all this supernatural When I was a kid growing up, we always had uh, we had several evangelists come every year and hold revivals. They weren't really evangelists. They really were revivalists. And they'd come to hold a week or two or three meetings in our church every night of the week. And invariably, the most common thing that would happen is the guy would tell you about the great outpouring of the power of God in the last revival. He just preached. Even though while he was with us, it was like a total dud. (laughs) And yet he had memories of his last meeting that was just supernatural. And and I think what happens is guys think that they have to be impressive in order to minister to people. I I got news for you, that isn't true. What we have to have is an impressive Christ and an impressive spirit working in the hearts of people. We have the spirit of God working in people's lives, he'll transform them. And his authority, as you notice, he says... My authority, given to me by Christ, is to preach to you the gospel that will fill your hearts with joy, not scare you to death with my letters. Now, Paul had to write some pretty scathing letters to them because of things that were going on at Corinth. But he wasn't trying to scare them. He was trying to minister to them. You know how it is when you write a note to somebody, and then you find out what they thought you were saying, and you had the opportunity in a gentle way to explain the meaning of what you were saying. And you couldn't believe that they read you in this harsh way, like you were their enemy. And so Paul says, oh, I'm not trying to scare you with my letters. I, wanna, I want you to experience the joy of the Lord. Chapter 12, verse 12, Paul says that he had the signs of the apostles, signs and wonders and miracles. God used him supernaturally to validate the message that he was preaching to them. Hebrews chapter 2 says this is something God did when the gospel first went out, that he manifested miraculous things through the preachers of the gospel as the gospel was being introduced into these new territories. So Paul could have talked about miracles and signs and wonders, but he wanted to point them to Christ. He wanted their eyes to be upon Christ. And this is what he had authority to do, even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave. That is, he gave him authority to go preach the gospel to Gentiles who had never, knew nothing about the Old Testament, knew nothing about the promised Messiah. And he said, he gave me this authority to go preach the gospel to Gentiles, which the Lord gave for building you up and not destroying you. I will not be put to shame, for I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. I want to see you grow, become confident in Christ. Now, this criticism, Paul's physical appearance and speaking voice, there's no firsthand knowledge. But I can tell you this, some of the most powerful sermons I've ever heard have been by guys that were totally unimpressive in appearance and in ability to speak. I've had that haven't you? Haven't you heard a, a preacher that wasn't impressive at all, and yet God used the words that he said to penetrate into your heart and open your eyes? The truth of the gospel? Of course. So he says what he says in his letters will be in his actions when he's with them. He's, gonna, he's consistent. Now the last thing, their last uh, he's a spiritual midget. He hasn't had any deep, he didn't have the baptism of the Holy Ghost. He doesn't speak in tongues. He doesn't perform miracles. Well, the fact is he had performed miracles right in front of them when he came and first preached the gospel to them. Now, forgive me, I'm not trying to demean anybody. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is something that every believer has experienced. When you got saved, you were baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ, and the Spirit came to live within you. There's no Christian in this room or in this world who doesn't have the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit residing in you, And he anoints you to speak. And he wants you to speak. He'll empower you in prayer. He'll empower you in witnessing. He'll empower you in living for Christ in this fallen world. But don't ever brag about how powerful you are, uh, how advanced you are in knowing truth, how you know all the attributes of God, or anything like that. Boast in Christ. Boast in Christ. What's changed your life? What is it that's, that's the most glorious thing about walking with Jesus? It's a changed life. It's not where I've been or what I've done. It's who I know and who knows me. And so in this last section, he says he's just a spiritual midget compared to us is the implication these so-called apostles. This is short, just 12, verses 12 through 18. Let me read this to you. For we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves, but when they measure themselves by themselves, these so-called apostles, he says, but we will not boast beyond our measure, but within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned to us. And that is that he gave him this, this territory to go take the gospel into an unreached territory. Go and take the gospel to the Gentiles. And he says, to reach even as far as you. For we are not overextending ourselves as if we did not reach to you, for we were the first to come even as far as you with the gospel of Christ. The first time they were exposed to the gospel of Christ was the Apostle Paul who came to Corinth. And he was scared. That's that's the picture you get in Acts 18. He's scared because he's been thrown in prison in every town, and now it's starting to happen again. And so he's at night, he's nervous, wondering what's going to happen, and Jesus appears and says, don't be afraid. I have, Keep on speaking. I have many people in this city. He's going to save a whole host of people. And he says, no, not boasting beyond our measure, that is, in other men's labors, but with the hope that as your faith grows, we... We will be within our sphere enlarged even more by you. In other words, you're going to help send me on even further with the gospel so as to preach the gospel even to the regions beyond you and not to boast in what has been accomplished in the, the sphere of another. That's what these false teachers were doing. They were coming to Corinth and they were saying, You guys ought to listen to us. We can tell you the real thing. Wait a minute, who brought the gospel to them? The guy they're attacking. He says, but the one who boasts, but he who boasts is to boast in the Lord. You want to boast? Boast in the Lord. For it's not he who commends himself that is approved, but he who, whom the Lord commends. Paul' response is twofold. The first is he refers to this agreement that had happened over a decade before this, when he agreed with James and John and Peter that he would go, they would go to the Jews, and he would go to the Gentiles because that's what Christ told him to do. And they all agreed with that. And so he refers to that. And so he says he confines confines his boasting to the field that God has assigned to him. And then, by the way, something that needs to be done all the time is the declergifying of the church. There's no such thing as clergy laity. And let me tell you why. In the New Testament, it uses the word "upon which" the word "clergy" is built to refer to all of you. First Peter five, you are God's allotment, and then it refers to, to those that we would refer to as clergy as the the people of God, the laity of God. It actually uses a Greek word, laos. You see, so there's no hierarchy in the church. It's true we have different functions. But we're all, we have all been given the Spirit. We've all been given this assignment to make disciples for Jesus Christ. Our mission as the people of God is to make disciples. And so that's why we want to have small groups, because we want you to fulfill your calling to make disciples. And it's much easier to do it in a community. Because you can contribute by being there and actually being in the Word, actually living for Christ and being in His Word every day and having a walk with Him and then contributing to the atmosphere of this group, and people will grow. And that's a part of making disciples. It's one of the primary ways. Jesus made disciples, not in one-on-one, but in community with 12 disciples. And that's primarily how we make disciples. And then Paul, so first he says you know, I'm just doing what we agreed that I would do. I'm going to the Gentiles. And then secondly, he says, this kind of comparison is meaningless. If we compare ourselves with ourselves, what what difference does that make? What difference does that make? We don't do that. And, and the reason is, is that we want to be commended by the Lord. We want to tell you about Christ. We have a a glorious Christ to proclaim, not a glorious record or path or past to proclaim, but a glorious Christ. And then his conclusion is found in the next chapter, the first six verses. Let me just read these to you. I wish that you would bear with me in a little bit of foolishness for indeed you are bearing with me. Brothers, he didn't like to defend himself. He didn't like to talk about himself, but he says, let me be a little bit foolish. And this is what he said, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I may present you as a pure virgin. So the first thing he says is, I'm the one who betrothed you to Christ. How many of you have seen Fiddler on the Roof? Okay, you're good Christians. Uh, <laughs> Fiddler on, and Fiddler on the Roof, do you remember the girls? They, I mean, is it Tevia? Is that his name? He, he was a, a poor Jewish man who had five daughters, five daughters that he had to get married. And so he turned to a matchmaker because the oldest one was of marrying age. And of course, you remember the story. The matchmaker wanted to hook her up with a guy that was like 66. And she's just this young woman. And so in that, they sing this song, matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match, find me a find, catch me a catch, matchmaker, matchmaker, look through your book and make me a perfect match. And you remember those scenes, it's so funny, those five girls, when they're talking about what it's going to be like for the matchmaker to get them a husband. I mean, they want a guy that they're attracted to, instead of an old man who can't find a wife and finally has enough money to pay for a good wife. And so Paul says, I'm like a matchmaker. I betrothed you to Christ. Now what he's talking about is he brought the gospel to them. When they believed the gospel, they were joined to Christ. All of you men understand that you're part of the bride of Christ, right? I mean, a lot of times women get upset because we say you're a son of God. That's what the Bible says. Every woman in the body of Christ is a son of God. But don't feel bad because your husband is a part of the bride of Christ. (laughs) That's what the church is. We're the bride of Christ. And so Paul says, I betrothed you to Christ. So don't don't turn on me. Recognize that God sent me to you to bring you to Christ. He was acting like a matchmaker in that culture. And then secondly, in verses 5 and 6, don't forget I was the one who was sent by Jesus. Jesus sent me to you. And when you read the gospel, you read the account in Acts 18, I mean, Jesus came and showed himself to to Paul and said, you must stay here and keep preaching the gospel because I have many people to save here. And God did. Paul did that and Jesus saved them. So, so what to all this? Well, what I want to drive home to your heart is that you are a steward of the grace of God. Every one of you who are believers, you are a steward of the manifold grace of God. You are to be dispensing the grace of God into people's lives. And in one sense, the way to define grace is grace is God giving himself to you. And so what you have to offer is Christ. And God's called you to do that. You're a new covenant minister. You're an ambassador of Christ. Don't allow the opposition to deter you from this mission. Some of you are afraid of what people would think if you actually... Stepped up and started talking to somebody about Christ. I think you were too. What do you think you? Who do you think you are? Well, let me tell you who you are. You're an ambassador of Jesus Christ. And remember, we saw this. And Paul says, therefore, I'm encouraging you to beg, to plead with people to be reconciled to Christ, to be reconciled to God through Christ. So I just want to encourage you, grow as a disciple. Get involved in making disciples by getting into a small group and just being an example, living your Christian life in a a community where you can encourage fellow believers to grow and to follow Christ. Um, And pray for those in the world that are being persecuted, not that they would be safe, but that they would be fruitful. And God would bring many people to faith through their persecution. So when they stand before Christ, Jesus is going to say to them, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Father, we ask you right now if you would bring your word to bear upon our hearts. We're amazed at this process of how you can take the the Bible, the word of God, and bring it to bear upon our thinking and our life. And we want that. We desire that, Father. So we ask you, please take this word and cause it to penetrate deeply into our hearts. Help us to remember who we are and what you've called us to, and not to be ashamed or filled with fear, but rather to be humble and meek and confident in Christ and the truth of the gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen